0: This is I Was There, gigs that change the world.
1: This, I want to tell you, is a Town experience. All the way from Town, Jamaica. Bart Martin, come on!
2: There are very few artists where you can point and say, that was the moment he went big time. That was the absolute efflorescence of 12 years of preparation. And it all came together in that perfect moment, and bang, the world knew the power of Bob Marley and the movement of Rastafari.
0: Episode 2 Bob Marley and the Whalers at the Lyceum Theatre, 17th and 18th of July, 1975.
3: My name is Dennis Morris, I'm a photographer, artist and I'm here to talk about my time working with Bob Marley in particular the gig of gigs which was at the Lyceum. Well it all started really because from a very young age I was fascinated with photography and I also knew that uh, I wanted my life to be around photography and I was around my last year at school. I'd read he was coming over to do his first tour of England and the first show he was doing was at a club called The Speakeasy, just off Oxford Street. So I didn't go to school that day and went for my camera and stood outside the venue and just waited and waited and eventually he and the other whalers turned up and I walked up to him and said to him, could I take a picture? And he said, yeah man, come in. Uh, I went in, you know, I was taking shots while they were doing their sound check. And he really talked to me, he was fascinated by me and, you know, was asking what it was like to be a young black kid in England. And I was asking him, you know, about Jamaica, because although I was born in Jamaica, I was very, very young. And uh, at the end of it, he said to me that, you know, if I wanted to come on the tour. And I said, yeah. So next day, um, I packed my bag as if I was doing sports, went to the hotel where they were staying, and jumped in the van in those days. It wasn't a tour bus, it was a transit van. And there's a very famous picture of him looking back at me. I was a seat behind him, saying, are you ready, Dennis? And I went, click, yes. That's probably one of the most iconic shots of him. And that's how the adventure began.
2: I'm Roger Stephens, and I have been a reggae fanatic since 1973 when I first heard Catch a Fire. And I read an article in Rolling Stone in June of 1973, and the writer said, Reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. And I said, I don't know what the heck that means, but I gotta go out right now and find it. And I bought a copy of Catch a Fire. The rhythm is inescapable. The rhythm of reggae is the beat of the healthy human heart at rest. And that heartbeat music that underpinned this brilliant, brilliant poetry of Bob that was one I, I, I was up about about 10, 10 days Lyceum. before the Lyceum show at the Paramount Theatre in Oakland and Bob came out on stage and the audience from that first entrance went crazy. They ended up standing on the arms of the seats in this swanky theater dancing to Bob's music. Everyone's mind was blown by that performance. My
4: name is Chris Blackwell,
2: and I was involved in getting this concert
4: to happen. When Bob was on tour in Los Angeles, he played a show in the Roxy Club. And during the show, I heard a lot of people in the audience sing along. So I rang my office in England and said, listen, we've got to set up a live concert as soon as we can because the sound and the effect of audience singing along with it was really moving and
1: it was special. So that's what they did. They set up the show. Hi, folks. I'm Stephen Catcore, one of the founders of Third World, the musical group, that is. And I want to talk about my experience with the Lyceum opening for Bob Marley. We got a gig down in the West End at Gillies, a club called Gillies. And it was at Gillies that Chris Blackwell came, and then he spoke to us at night. He said, listen guys, come and see me at Hammersmith Studios, which we did, and that started our whole relationship with him. And while we were doing the first album, Bob was coming over to do his tour with Natty Dread, and Chris thought it was a good thing for us to open for Bob, and that's how we got on that Lyceum I'm sure.
5: This is uh, Danny Holloway, and I'm the guy that recorded the show. I was Chris Blackwell's right hand guy and I was very young, 22, 23, and then he approached me one day and he said, how would you like to produce Bob Marley and the Whalers? And so I started laughing because he was their producer, it made no sense, you know, he explained it to me that there was going to be a live show at the Lyceum, it's an extension of the Natty Dread tour, which had been going very well in the US, and he wanted to record the show. But for once, he wanted to play hoax. So that's how I came to do it.
3: In that space of time, of from them returning, I'd left school and I was struggling to try and find work as a photographer. And I knew about the gig and I got in touch with the Island Records and they said, yeah, yeah sure, Bob remembers it, so I got a photo pass, so there I was in a photo pit with all their known photographers. And it was kind of unheard of really in those days. There were no black photographers in the media. And then on top of that, I had an old Leica camera. And Leica is possibly the worst cameras to use for rock gigs anyway. And so I was literally was taking a mickey out of me in some ways. So and I like, what the hell's going on? You know, <laughs> where's this? But I had one thing over them because I'd seen Bob play before. So I knew the way he performed. You know, every artist has a particular way of performing at a particular side of the microphone. So I positioned myself and I mean, by the time he came on stage, I was ready. I knew exactly what i had to do
5: at that time live albums were kind of perverse they weren't recording the crowd the only time you'd hear the crowd is to the vocal mics or something and the group after having been recorded would go into the studio and try to make it sound like their album there was nothing live about the experience so when i walked through the venue with the two engineers I was very intent on finding places that we could record the crowd well. There were some rafters that were about 25 feet or 30 feet above the crowd. And I asked them, is it possible to throw leads over the rafters and then dangle them above the
2: crowd's head? And that's what we did. And it was a strange world in which Bob was performing at that time. I talked to Ebo Cooper, The opening act at the Lyceum was Third World. And Ebo said when he went into the dressing room at the Lyceum, the walls were plastered with posters marked Keep Britain White. And he said it was frightening.
6: My name is Philip Norman, and I went there to review this Bob Marley concert. I came to be there because I was the first pop music critic of the terribly then solemn broadsheet, Daily Times newspaper, but I persuaded the arts editor of The Times to let me review concerts, including this one. So I was there actually to write a review of it, which was rather hard because the heat was so (laughs) horrendous. I hardly registered what was going on.
5: Before the show, I went out front of the venue to greet my wife and make sure she got in okay. And I could sense the vibe right there. There was a dangerous vibe that night. There were pickpockets and all this kind of stuff going on, but it didn't ever get ugly. You know, it added to the adrenaline of it, and Bob just rose to the occasion.
4: Well, I was upstairs in one of the, like, boxes, and the Lyceum was totally packed. A huge amount of people turned up. I mean, there wasn't room to squeeze a soul in there. It was one of those events that anybody who was there will never forget it. It was just incredibly exciting to see that much excitement from an audience, you know, for somebody who, this was really their first show that they did in in London. You would think it was from somebody who'd been touring for years
3: or something like that. One thing I do remember, Bob had this vision It was very biblical, because he knew when he walked out on stage, although the audience was small, he played as if it was sold out. Because he knew that 200 people, he knew that if he won them over, that 200 would go out and say, wow, you should have seen it, man. It was such a gig, blah, blah, blah. So he knew biblically that 200 next time would be 400 or 600.
2: So when Bob came to the Lyceum, it was with tremendous expectations The Natty Dread album, which was his first solo album, had been out for a few months,
1: and people were really anxious to see what he could do. And I never forget this image where the dressing rooms were upstairs, and I was coming down the stairs from the dressing rooms to go to the stage and a window just broke and this little kid and his two friends break through the window and the license went coming because they had to see about Mali. they just had to see him and you know they're decked out him their african army suits with the red green and gold still buttons so i realized where the thing was going you know
4: there were just so many people there and there was a sense of excitement which was great there was a sense that all the people who were there didn't want to be anywhere else in the world except where they were right there, right then,
3: at that time. And then originally it was only supposed to be one date. Um, but then, because of the amount of people, they had to put another date in. And so by the time then when he returned and played the Lyceum, wow. Man, it was unbelievable. The Messiah had returned, if you know what I'm saying, to deliver the message. There was absolute pandemonium. I mean, it was absolute chaos. For me, the highlight was one, when he walked on stage. (laughs) I mean, it really was, oh my God. It was, it was like that. It was like seeing the Messiah, you know, on the mountaintop to deliver the message. The place just erupted for the first time as well. To hear the music being played with such power, when it hit you, you know, it's like he said, Bob said, you know, one good thing about music, when it hits you, you feel no pain. And boy, when it hit you, it
1: was
3: like, <laughs> war, wow, and you wanted to be in it, you know.
2: Okay, I have some of the reviews from the British press here. Charles Shar Murray, in his review, talked about from the opening Trench town Rock through to the finale of I Shot the Sheriff, the quality of the show was nothing less than overwhelming. Music of this intensity comes along, but rarely.
6: I have never been in a hotter place than the Lyceum that night. All of my senses were affected by the terrible heat. It just was numbing. People were literally sort of wilting with the heat.
3: There were people that were climbing on top of the roof of the Lyceum, if you can believe it, trying to get in. Inside it was so, so hot that uh, the body sweat, the body, when it rose, it hit the ceiling. It came down as if it was raining droplets and, you know, some rascals like, like look up and go,
6: Ja! And the sight of Marley on stage, I could hardly believe this sort of mirage like image of these people on stage. And the feeling that you were looking really, at something incredible. not only completely new, but not quite real because that stage lineup, not only Marley and the Wailers, but what seemed to be like sort of living statues of women were just like a mirage in their extraordinary high headdresses and their very languid body movements, as if they were floating in this kind of fog of heat and pot. It was like very few things I've ever seen on a stage before or since.
4: He put together a great band. You know, the I-Trees were fantastic singers. They were the three best female singers in Jamaica. They were tight. They were all very close friends. And it was an extraordinary vocal group. So Bob had them to work with and counter from when they'd sing a chorus thing or something like that. And these sings his bit.
5: People often ask me, was it recorded? And we had our own video department at that time. They were there primarily for monitoring purposes, so their feed came into the truck and then I could see what was going on on stage. I could see the musicians and there was a little tiny screen. It was black and white and it was like three by three or four by four. And that's all I could see.
3: It seemed that somewhere from the minute he walked on stage and he walked up to the mic, something would come from the heavens and hit him. And he would just go, ja, and then boom, the music would come, and then woof, you would then feel it, and then, ah, and then, you know, he'd start flashing his locks, and you'd literally, for some people, they would see lightning, or thunder, you you know what I mean?
2: Never a performer that people had seen in 1975 who was like Bob Marley. He became possessed when he was on stage. He would grab his head in delicious sexual agony and uh, thrust his hand out into the audience and point that finger in the middle of a song where he hadn't opened his eyes for two or three minutes and.
3: Women would faint in the aisles when Bob did that. Oh, he was a live wire on stage. I mean, <laughs> really he was. I remember one of the things that happened was he had turned around and said to the rest of the band, he said, listen, he said, you see when I jump up and down and run across the stage and do all them things there, eh? he said, just keep the music steady, man. Don't follow me, just keep the music steady. Make me on, and then we'll come back in.
2: He was just mesmerizing. He had the ability to hold an audience in the palm of his hand, just by the sheer force of his conviction and that honest conviction, which was so obvious to the audience, made him bigger than a rock star, bigger than life.
3: He would hold the guitar like a gun, and I shot the sheriff, and like, yeah, Bob, yeah, you shot him for real, you know. He was. Like for instance, when he played in Japan, I don't think 99% of the audience never understood a word he was saying, but he had this way of, he acted out the words. He performed the words. So he knew what he was saying by his movements. And that's how people picked up on it in that sense.
4: He gave everything on stage, everything he could on stage in terms of movement and uh, presence and the energy. And it was pretty impressive.
2: Carl Dallas in The Melody Maker interviewed Bob the next day and asked Bob if he had been scared by the crowd at the Lyceum. And Bob said, no, it's no worry me so much. The only thing, I didn't want them pull me off the stage or hurt me. That indicates the passion that was at large in the audience that night, which was about 50-50 black and white.
3: It was a 50-50 mix, and it was a very united vibe, you see what I'm saying? It was a glorious night, it really was. It was just a very special time. It's, I can only say that he was a man of, of his time. It was his time, and it was our time. Everything magically just gelled together.
5: That show was when everything came together. The black and white crowd, it just all gelled and created a really special event. Like I said, it felt flukish in a way, but we captured it.
1: When we actually got to, to do the show, it was like a, a marquee event in our life. I mean, I had loved Batman from when I was 12, 13 years old, and I had no idea he would have become so huge. And When I saw that crowd that night in I last him, I realized to myself, yes, this man is going to be massive.
3: Every single song that he sang on that night represented everything that we were going through, if you see what I'm saying. From No Woman No Cry, to I Shot the Sheriff, to whatever whatever it may be, it was everything was all literally aimed at us to say, now is the time to move up. And that's what it was.
2: Why No Woman No Cry? helped break the music not only in England but worldwide is kind of a mystery because it was one of his ballads and uh, it wasn't a rocking raucous sound like get up stand up or other calls to action, it was a song of solace. And it just fit the mood of the age because there were so many people being brutalized by what Bob called the system. And it was the right song at the right time.
6: Live recordings, I mean, don't always convey the absolute feeling of being there, but that one does. I could even sort of somehow feel the heat (laughs) through the live recording. And that is the song that showed people that you didn't have to like reggae like Bob Marley, you could like Bob Marley or something apart. And
2: that tremendous audience response that you can hear on the recording, and it became an enormous success in England as a single, uh, quite unexpectedly, but it was the song that brought Bob Marley to international attention.
5: And then the most beautiful thing of all was there was this kind of intense, excited energy from the crowd and we captured that. And the crowd was singing in places that they weren't asked to sing in. And we were lucky on that side of it.
3: For me, every Mali show was like a sermon on the mountain top. <laughs> it was a gathering of like-minded minds. It wasn't just about music. It was about the spirituality. It was about knowledge. It was about the new meaning of blackness for black people was a consciousness as well, you know. Um, it was all these things which was kind of missing in society at the time. And through Bob, you know, and through his message, he showed us that it was more than just music, if you see I mean. It really was, it was a gathering. And everybody that was there at a the Bob Marley gig knew that they weren't just there just to smoke some weed, you know, and do whatever. They were there because they felt that they would gain more than just, oh I saw a great gig. They all knew that they would walk out and look at themselves differently, look at their fellow man differently, look at the environment differently, look at the way they live differently. That's what uh, we all gained from it.
2: think of all the things that would have happened probably if Bob had not died when he did. You know, all the things we wish he could have lived to accomplish instead of passing at 36, but he was a prophet. He told Ibis Pitts and Dion Wilson, two young friends of his back in the 60s, that he was going to die at 36. So I talked to both of them and I talked to his mother for my book and they all confirmed, the three of them, that Bob had said he was going to die at 36 back when he was 24 years of age. So that explained the the near frenzy of activity in his life.
6: The thing is that he's sort of like a secular saint in the way that John Lennon later became, because he seemed to be an almost a symbol of the power of music to not only create joy, but preach for peace and brotherhood. He's turned out to be very human as well, and so he is kind of like one of the saints of popular music. And that all started on that night.
3: You have to remember the time from 1975 through to 77 through to 80, you know, the change that England was going through. Everything was politicised in that way, do you see what I mean? So the music, reggae, lyrically from Bob and everybody else around. But as everything else, there was always a figurehead, and so Bob became the figurehead. Well, I can say everybody literally flew home that night, <laughs> seriously. I mean, uh, the contents of what was being smoked inside the room and uh, the uplift that you felt from seeing him on stage, you just basically just went home and you just felt strong, powerful. Yeah, I can do it, you know, yeah, I can get there. What problem? Oh, I've got that bill to pay. Yeah, i have got to find a way, but you know, whatever. We all just floated out of there and just, wow, it was easy.
2: (laughs) I've known the whalers for a long, long time, and I spent two weeks on the road with Bob in 1979 on his final tour of the United States. It was very obvious to all of them that Lyceum show was the turning point. It, It made the world aware that Bob could handle a huge venue and Bob rose to the occasion. That was another one of his marvelous triumphs. That's a show that they still talk about to this day.
5: After the show, there was an after party at a place that was near Carnaby Street, a club called La Valbon. And Bob was very happy after the first show on Thursday night, and he was dancing. You know, he's out on the floor dancing. And to my knowledge, he wasn't known to dance generally. In fact, his style of dancing on stage was kind of awkward and everything like that. But he was in a very relaxed mood and he looked good when he was dancing. And I could see that women were attracted to him and all that stuff. So the whole night, I think, was a really good one for him. And he was happy and satisfied about it.
3: That was the beginning for me, in that sense, because from that show, I got the front cover of Melody Maker and Enemy, and also Time Out magazine. And that launched my career as a rock photographer. From the first meeting I had with him and from that gig and everything else, um, I literally ended up being his personal photographer. It was
2: amazing to be around him. The two weeks I, I spent on the road with him in 79, he didn't talk a lot and he could be in a room with 50 people, and he was the center of attention. The mood of the room followed Bob. I think Bob was really, really
4: an exceptional human being. It was just a natural thing that you warmed to him because of his aura and because he was different. There was something special about him.
1: What can I tell you? I I can't really describe my feelings about Bob Marley. I just tried, I just tried. We can't describe Bob Marley, we can't pull apart his greatness, we can't look into the fabric of what kind of process he was. We just have to take it and we just have to look at it and say, yes, this was a great man. And how much it helped me in my career and helped me to launch myself as a musician. That's a real important thing to me.
3: When I look back on it, I think from the very first time I met him, I realised it was the best thing I ever did in my life. Changed my life. And then right the way through, you know, it, it made me the person I am. I can really say the only reason why I'm still here doing what I'm doing is because I was fortunate enough to have met Bob and to be around him and to see him as a mentor, to keep me together, to hold me together, you know, through all the ups and downs.
2: I've been into music my entire life. I'm 78 years old now. And there has never been an artist who has touched me on so many levels as Bob Marley has, and whose message was so incredibly important.
5: You know, I'm sentimental about it. One of my major tasks when I joined the company, you know, Blackwell told me, was to launch Bob to a worldwide audience and to introduce reggae music to the world. And Blackwell's goal was to take reggae to the rest of the world And have bob marley be the reggae superstar that he turned out
6: to be no one had ever come along to lift the genre into this completely sort of wonderful hugely universal appeal which marley did
2: for people who had been long-time fans of reggae it was the icing on the cake for them it legitimized their belief that reggae was much more than a novelty music. This was serious, conscious, revolutionary music, calling people to get up, stand up.
5: Well, a Lyceum gig was significant just because of the synergy that occurred.
6: I'm sure that certainly was the moment that broke Bob Marley in the UK, and also woke people up.
4: In everybody's career, the things that really stand out often those things aren't really planned in great detail but just by chance it just really happens and is more than you ever expected it would be and i think that's what the show was like
1: i watched it from everywhere i watched it from the side stage i watched it from in the back of the crowd i watched it from the soundboard I watched it from front row, I walked through everywhere I took, really pummel my way through the crowd. I remember lots of things, but boyoy, that's the thing I remember the most. That started right there, that Lyceum gig. as far as I'm concerned, that was where it really started.
3: I the mean, lyceum that was the gig of gigs because that was the gig that launched him and he knew the importance of that gig and so when he walked out there like I said as a biblical thing Bob was the man and his flock was there and he had to deliver the message and he did deliver the message and from then the flock became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and, bigger, and the flock is still growing. That show itself was a very memorable show for for me and for everybody else that was there.
2: I talked to a lot of the people who had been at the Lyceum and and they all agreed that it was unlike anything they had experienced before. And for them to see it happen to a Jamaican straight from Trenchtown
1: was astonishing to them. There was lots of things happening in the black community that were positive. And Bob Marley coming to England at the time, with his Natty Dread album, was just something very special. I was a part of it, I lived it, I saw it. And there are a couple of things in my life, if you miss them, you miss something. That Lycee, I'm sure, clearly is one of them, I have to tell you. So it's a very great treasure to all of us who were there, you know what I mean?
4: Incredible experience, incredibly exciting. I think
3: everybody who was there felt they were at the centre of the world. I did an exhibition a few years ago, and um, this guy he bought a few print. You know, I said to him, oh, you know, obviously you're into Bob Marley." He said, "Into Bob Marley." He said, "That man made my life." I said, "Oh, really?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "I was at the Lyceum. So many people's lives were." Change. A lot of people had, didn't really know what to do with their lives, which way to go. But after seeing the man on stage, it all became clear. You know, it was that kind of event.
0: Thanks to Chris Blackwell, Island Records founder and Bob Marley producer, Danny Holloway, Island Records employee who recorded The Lyceum Show, Roger Steffens, Bob Marley writer, lecturer and archivist, Philip Norman, journalist who reviewed the gig for The Times, Dennis Morris, Bob Marley's photographer, and Stephen Catcore, guitarist and celloist for Third World, who opened for Bob Marley. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast and make sure to share I Was There with friends. I'm Sophie Kaye and this was an Absolute Radio production. Next time on I Was There, gigs that changed the world. A gig by one of the world's biggest bands that should have been the hippie ideal. Instead, it resulted in the loss of life and the end of the counterculture.
2: There's a kind of symbolic convergence that just is impossible to ignore the impact of in america
5: it's kind of bookends uh, in a way with woodstock being the happy joyous festival and altamont being the kind of rock and roll a
6: disaster i had these dynamic images of the hell's angels with the pool cues beating people up it's gonna last forever
0: it's the rolling stones at altamont